Welcome to Room of Requirement, uh, a podcast dedicated to soul care and resistance in the time of Trump, with your hosts, uh, Miracle Jones and Kamala Sharal. And uh, today uh, we're here with a, a special guest, uh, Ross Goodwin. Hi. Stoner, psychonaut, word warrior. Yeah, all those things. <laughs> um, I like Gonzo Data Scientist. He might be most famous right now for his short film, Sunspring. Everybody thinks it's sunscreen for some reason. It drives me crazy. But yeah, Sunspring. Yeah. Sunspring. Uh, which you might have seen. It stars Thomas Middleditch. It's a neural net generated uh, uh, science fiction movie that's actually really good. Uh, I, Thank you. I like it. It's fantastic. I think most people do. It's really well done. Much appreciated. Uh, and But he also, in another life, uh, you know, used to work for the government. Yeah, I used to be a G-man, for, for real. Um, I uh, worked for Barack Obama at the White House for a couple years, um, after that, I worked at Treasury for Tim Geithner. And uh, before that, uh, I worked on the Obama campaign in 08. And uh, I worked uh, for John Kerry in his Senate office before he was Secretary of State. I mean, I was a presidential writer. There's a difference. So, like, um, there are speech writers. There's the Office of Speech Writing. And if you want to read about the Office of Speech Writing, I have a book to recommend. It's called White House Ghosts, the history of the White House Speech Writing Office. And what a lot of people don't know is that the White House Speech Writer, before the president, before television, the president didn't give very many speeches. So the president didn't used to have a speech writer. FDR was the first president to have a dedicated speech writer um, in the, I guess that's 30s, early 30s, um, because he was, he, television was more, was more um, available. And... Um, over time, the speechwriting offices has grown from being, interestingly enough, the president's like right-hand person is the head speechwriter to being speechwriting as a craft. You have an office full of people, like a comedy show, who writes your speeches. So the, the, the point being that now the speechwriter is like some guy, right? Like some white, white, blonde, Aryan, perfect man. But that person is, no, is not close to Trump as, as much as someone like Steve Bannon is. I was a presidential writer, which is different than being a speechwriter. Speechwriters would write all the things that the president says, and presidential writers write the written statements. So I get to work on speeches a couple times in that role. I wrote a couple, but I mostly wrote like presidential proclamations, which are like statements of national days, weeks, and months of things. So I wrote everything from African American History Month to like Safe Voting Week. Like, so, you know, ask me questions about proclamations if you want. <laughs> I was looking at Trump's recently, his presidential proclamations, and it's amazing how, like, despite the fucking gravitational, like, just, like, law of nature different, binary difference between Trump and Obama, that the proclamations are the fucking same as the ones that I was writing eight <laughs> right. years ago. So the fact <laughs> of the matter is that change. certain things haven't changed, <laughs> yeah. and that gives me comfort. Yeah, yeah. Thank uh, you, Deep State. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. I also, oh, oh, oh my god, I have, so, I, have a, I have a big reveal I can make right now. Okay. I hid a reference to David Foster Wallace in a proclamation. Yeah, it's in the, it's in the Pan American Week proclamation. <laughs> I hid the word interdependence in it. It's yeah, yeah interdependence day. That's yeah, interdependence day, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I hid, I hid interdependence in the proclamation. Uh. I said, a legacy of independence and interdependence. I still remember the line. And, and the fucking, the, the beautiful part is like, I'm reading this on an embassy website right now because whoever, some countries like loved the fact that I use interdependence. Yeah, yeah. And it's but the, my favorite proclamation I ever wrote was the one for Cesar Chavez Day. It was our first. It was the first Cesar Chavez Day recognized by the White yeah. House. 
And I hope Trump fucking keeps it, that asshole. If he doesn't keep it, I'm fucking, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be very upset. It's really exciting and really fun and really addictive until it becomes like exhausting. a curse and exhausting and horrible. And um, those jobs were all really interesting. By the end of it, I was really sick of politics um, and, and never wanted to touch it again. Which is perfect because this is a political podcast. <laughs> Wonderful. So you dragged me back. You dragged me back into hell. Thank you. Thank you, Miracle Jones. <laughs> no problem. But, hey, some people never leave hell. <laughs> but we're, we're here, first and foremost, to just see how you're doing. You know, Right. I mean? We like to start every podcast with a check-in, make sure that we are staying sane. And yeah. for people who are just tuning in, the reason we started this podcast is to make sure um, that we didn't launch ourselves off a cliff in the wake of the election. Tragically, somehow, like, this is the weird part, is that things are great for me. I mean, the world sucks right now. The world is on fire. But my life is great. I'm a full-time artist in Brooklyn, and I'm um, going on a road trip next week to New Orleans that Google is uh, kind enough to rent me a car for. Um, and uh, we're going to cover the car with surveillance equipment, and the car is going to generate a story of our trip using GPS on the roof, a surveillance camera on the hood, uh, microphones inside the car, and the time. And all those elements will be narrated by a set of integrated neural nets that I have designed. Um, and the end result will be sort of like automatic on the road. We're going to print a scroll <laughs> into the trunk. Um, and we're going to make it the longest novel in the English language. That's the goal. Um, so I, I have 33 of these 127-foot rolls of paper. I did the math. That'll be 1.1 a, a, a million words. So, the night of the election, everybody took it different. How how are you? Like how? So what um, are you expecting? Now? November 9th was my thirtieth birthday. Oh God! <laughs> and I had the birthday party a few days later. I don't really remember that very well. Like it was just sort of a dark period for me. Yeah. The days after the election. I mean, I'm susceptible to that shit, and it just sort of really got to me. So, like, depression? Or? Um, yeah. I mean, like, I have bipolar disorder, yeah. and, like, I mean, I, I, I'm fortunate to have the kind that's mostly manic, but um, I'm susceptible to, like, minor depression spells, nothing serious. But, like, yeah, I didn't leave my apartment for, like, three days, and, like, I, I ended up having my birthday party at a dark bookstore. Molasses books, everyone! <laughs> um, it was my 30th birthday, and I, and I also planned to quit smoking. You see, I had... <laughs> Uh, decided that about a year prior to this that I would not have a cigarette after I turned 30, that it was just a bad decision. And then the election happens, and the day I'm supposed to quit smoking is also the day that this fucking monster gets elected to president of the United States. I lasted like three days still. I, I, I got through the nicotine withdrawal, but then I was just like, fuck the world. <laughs> and I picked up a pack of cigarettes and smoked it. Um, so uh, I'm still smoking. Yeah, it's, re I mean, it's a really bad habit, man. It's a bad habit. Man. Actually, Miracle Jones quit smoking in the new year, right? Yeah. Like, you picked up January smoking 1st. just for the election. Yeah, I picked or up, I started smoking, like, during, in the lead up. Dude, on the 08 campaign, everybody yeah. smoked cigarettes. Yeah. Everybody, fucking everybody. The boss did, you know? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, top down. He said a good example for all of us right, in that man. sense. Yeah, um, but, so that was, that inauguration happened on your birthday as well or that, that election that was a really good birthday yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. we so just they... fucking won a presidential election yeah. it was November it was I actually had the date tattooed on my leg it's November <laughs> November 4th 2008 and it was like the greatest day man I mean I was in but, but I was in Chicago in front of 300,000 people 
And there's nothing like seeing 300,000 people just like ecstatically happy. Once you experience that, you know what Hunter S. Thompson was writing about in the wave speech about like seeing the wave crest and then seeing it roll back. Like, that's really how I felt about this whole thing. Like, just this is the wave rolling back, and hopefully it'll crest again, but right now it's rolling back. Since the election, have you done anything in particular to kind of keep things sane? If you're sensitive to politics, I think it's a really hard time, right? So I like life? binge on news once a week, to be honest, and I read Twitter, yeah, and yeah. like I try to follow a diverse set of people on Twitter, and that gives me the sort of daily stuff I need um, to keep informed. But honestly, it's very hard to read the news these days, yeah. and I think um, for someone like me who was totally absorbed in this political world for like seven years um you know i lived ate breathed politics and i gave it up it was like a drug yeah. it is like a drug yeah. um, but anyway i gave it up and it's almost it almost feels like this is like some bad detox you know what i mean like this is just like i've got the dts right now and i'm just like oh in my experience people who call themselves political junkies have ended up not being the greatest people sometimes well I mean, i'll i'll just counter that with saying that in my experience, I think people have become more interested in politics, like, by an order of magnitude. Like, it's just really, I mean, people that I never thought of as having any interest or inkling in politics can talk about it, or not necessarily in a long way, or in a long discourse kind of way, but, like, people are just, I think, more interesting and more interested and more aware, um, just in my regular kind of, like, life. Yeah, I'd say that the luxury of the Obama years, for me, was not having to care <laughs> was yeah. Just being able no, to if you cared, the thing is, if you cared during the Obama years, yeah. then you are a political junkie. Yeah. And for me, I was like, great. It seems like everything is being handled. Or by at least the arc of thing. history is bending towards justice yeah, in some yeah, way, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. so, so. I mean, have your friends and family been taking it hard? Is it like? Oh yeah. I mean, like my where, mom. Where from? The, from? I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, so okay. fuck yeah. I mean, like, I'm from the the fucking bleeding heart of liberal America. I mean, like, and my mom, I remember the day of my birthday, my 30th birthday, November 9th, when everything happened, um, was like, it's like a death in the family. Mm -hmm. We were like, yeah, it really is, you know? And so it, that's how it felt, for sure. And, I mean, I guess there's, like, stages of grieving. Have you come to terms with... I'm definitely, like, past anger now. I know that. Like, yeah. I'm done being angry about it. I'm ready to, like, contribute to the discussion now. yeah. Because for a while, I was just like, I don't want to talk about it at all. I'm susceptible to emotional swings, so I don't want to... I need to maintain a cool head in my daily life, yeah, just yeah. for health reasons. So it's actually like unhealthy for me to talk about it too much. So <laughs> it's also unhealthy for me to smoke, so I'm, I'm doing that right now. So um, part, of the, part of the point of this podcast is to find a way to approach these things without doing like damage. Like trying to like... Well, you've already failed at that. So, I mean... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but... So, so do you have any plans to like, I don't know, become more involved in politics? Would you ever think about coming back to it? Fuck no. But in a different way. What, yes. What about as an activist? Um, I mean, yeah, no, I, I think of myself as a hacktivist, like for sure in the sort of Ethan Zuckerman vein, um, in that like I'm a fucking white hat hacker, but yeah. like I believe in things and so I can contribute to causes with my code. But the fact of the matter is that in terms of the role I had before as a ghostwriter, I mean, I, I didn't write a lot of speeches, but I, maybe I should have gotten the opportunity to do that. Well, so our approach is, you know, you're, you're, 
it's room of requirement, so it's defense against the dark arts, you know. Uh, and you're, oh, I'm a master of the dark yeah, arts. So yeah, my specialty, yeah. let me just be clear with you. My political specialty was not speech writing. Yeah. My political specialty was astroturfing. Explain what oh, astroturfing. Yeah, astroturfing. Why don't you explain what astroturfing is? Astroturfing is creating the illusion of grassroots, hence the name astroturf. And it's done by pretending to be more uh, like a, a swarm of human beings. That is all. But it's actually just me writing all the letters. Sure. Or some yeah, Russian, yeah. Some Russian. So I used to do that, and that's how I learned to code. Is I was like actually using computational techniques to help myself write letters faster. And it was really evil, but I was super poor and desperate at the time, and I yeah. needed money as a writer. And I feel really bad about it now. But I became really good at that, and I did it for causes that I believed in, like. Um, I worked for the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center for a little while, which is like, you know, a liberal uh, ballot initiative center that, that promotes these direct democracy interventions um, in cases like everything from like medical marijuana to um, things like uh, marriage equality. Um, and the fact of the matter is that that stuff's still really important to me. And I mean, I just have recognized in the past that I have certain skills and these skills, the problem is that I don't agree with them anymore. I don't want to do that stuff anymore. Yeah. I want to use my computational powers for good rather than evil. For defense against for the dark de arts. Exactly. It's stuff. defense against the dark arts, right. not dark arts. So I'm working right now with Caroline Cinders on a political project um, for, uh, for iBeam. Uh, we are developing a way to annotate, understand, and study fringe political groups through artistic intervention and machine learning. We're, we're still developing like a computational strategy for the whole project, but we're going to pick certain mem certain key members of the alt-right, whose names I won't say for now, um, the people we're considering, and basically use them as benchmarks to try to study these fringe movements and understand the sort of mechanisms by which they work. Because I think that that's a really important thing to do right now is before we can actually make a stab at like solving things like fake news and... like. Um, uh, which I hate that fucking term now because Trump has totally co-opted it. We need, we, need a, we need a progressive term for fake news now that the alt-right has fucking jumped on their false flag operation to, like, delegitimize that term. In 08, the progressives had the computational edge. Yeah, and Reddit. And, you can see and, it happen and, on Reddit. And, and the alt-right is caught up, yeah. and we need to recognize that. They've and caught like, up in their far more ruthless... They're far more fucking ruthless yeah. ideology, yeah. yeah. So the, and I was the, I was the communication coordinator for Republicans for Obama in 08 with this other guy, John McNaught, and um, he was an actual Republican. I was not. Mm -hmm. I was just, like, the, the writer... But I ghost wrote op-eds for um, people like Lincoln Chafee, um, if you remember him. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I ghosted for Lincoln Chafee for a bit. Um, I at least wrote him. I, it was this one op-ed from him, Rita Hauser, and Jim Leach. Jim Leach, former representative from Ohio, uh, Republican turned Democrat. Yeah, that was really interesting work because I just felt like I was like exercising my pure propagandist impulses, and it was wonderful, and it was such a high. But the high wore off and then it became like a job and yeah. then it became a fucking struggle and then it became an, a weird thing in my life that I wanted to get rid of. That's a good segue into politics. Do you want to start talking about politics? Or? Yeah, yeah. Are we gonna get, am I going to get sent to a labor camp because I'm on this podcast? No, don't worry. You guys are white. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's, so what happened this week in politics? Yeah, we like to go over what happened this week yeah. in politics. I have an idea actually for this for this segment. Can, can, I, can I generate a response from Trump? Do you have a Trump generator? Yeah. Yeah. It's trained on like years of transcripts of interviews of, with uh, Trump and, and, and Clinton. It's, it's a Trump Clinton generator. Yeah. But if I go Trump colon, it'll it'll talk like Trump. Let's see what let's see what Trump thinks about Trump care. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll Trump. Just get that ready for a second. Um, 
Okay, so so what do you think of Trump care? Trump. Well, I think it's a very interesting question. I think that the people of New Hampshire are going to be very careful with the polls. I think they're going to be very strong on the economy. I think they're going to be very strong. I think they're going to be very strong on the issues. I think they're going to have so, have to do something about it. I think they're going to be very strong on the polls. I think they're going to have to get the nomination. Okay, so that's the first answer at low temperature. Temperature is a parameter with neural nets that determines how risky the next letter prediction is. So basically, if you raise the temperature, you get more vocabulary, more variability, but also more mistakes. So that was really low temperature. Okay. That's why it's so grammatical, but it's also so repetitive. Um, like, like Trump. I mean, like Trump. It really so it's really the most accurate one, but yeah. so let's keep going. <laughs> um, what do you think of Trump care? Well, I think it's a very interesting question. Same beginning. I don't know if that's a good thing. I think it's a shame. I think it's a very important point. I think the problem is that we have a president that is a very serious candidate. And I think we, that will be a very important part of the campaign. I think the people of Iowa and the Republican Party are going to be very strong on the economy. So Trump really cares about Iowa, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything else happened in politics that you thought were, was interesting? Uh, that was interesting. Uh, I mean, I guess there's the continuing, ongoing Russia question, which is... Well, we have our own takes on it, but yeah. I mean, I think in some ways it's losing steam unless you can actually prove something, unless right? Unless anything comes out. Yeah, and I, I'm not... I, I'm one of those people who actually thinks that there is compromise, there is probably yeah. evidence, but we just don't have access to it, and without evidence access or evidence it's really hard to continue the thing that i keep coming up with is you know like i like i've, I've done in the past like i feel like trump is white oj right like oh, I oh whoa <laughs> well, I, 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 that's a complex wait unpack that a little bit <laughs> the reason why i'd say is like was well, a lot of reasons but the that it was a huge cultural touchstone yeah it was a giant like shit storm that kind of kicked off the culture war and was the culture war yeah everybody's association to the oj trial and the point is that we have certain touchstones, like cultural events that are touchstones, I think, and sometimes they're not political, explicitly political, that really divide the country. And yeah, because really there's no up, right answer. There's right, right. And, but you line up and you end up identifying with one side or another, and that's yeah. more of a marker of a sense of identity yeah. than anything else. And that's why I, 100%, I, we have the same thought roughly at the same time, yeah. that I think he is the white OJ, OJ because people identify with Trump and are willing to duck bend him as a marker of identity. With the OJ trial, people were willing to look past evidence or just not take in evidence because it was part of a larger argument. Well, and, and also I, that's why the analogy holds. Yeah. Also, in in the run of his life, which is the Jeffrey Tubin book, he talks to some of the uh, prosecutors, and and the conclusion they came to was ultimately, and outside people looking in, was that there was too much evidence. Right. That something that. And that caused people to be suspicious. There was so much physical evidence and so much circumstantial evidence and so much, you know, tapes. Of, are you saying? Are you saying OJ did it? I'm. I'm saying there's a high likelihood that he. There's not really a case to be made that OJ didn't do it. He obviously did. But I think that the point is. <laughs> sure. um, but I think the point is that certain people felt like they really didn't care that there was a larger indictment of about corruption, about police brutality. Yeah. And, and that's why. It, it just no it, matter how it much never entertained. So, but I think the point about the OJ analogy is that it takes a long time for these identities or this identification with someone to wear off. So, like, it's only after a long period of time and effectively OJ battering his own image and like doing as much as he can. The other, I guess, similarity to OJ is when with when, when it's a situation like this with the Manson family, with the Ron Contra, with. Uh, 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 the Nixon affair, you get in-depth, unwanted details on a daily basis about like mediocre people that you'd rather not know about. You know, you you just like you're you're bombarded daily with like 
Yeah, minutia. Trump is Mark Zuckerberg's fault. I'm just going to say it. Because, like, Trump uh, uh, sent a a delegation of Republicans to go to Mark Zuckerberg. This was, like, in April. And this is very well known internally at Facebook. This was in April of 2016. And they basically said, hey, Mark, your algorithms are so great. You should stop having humans filter the news feeds on Facebook. Yeah. Right? And he listened to them. And he did it. And it was the fucking biggest con in electoral history. Probably. Because, like, that is where Americans get their news. And, like, he just fucking knew that these alt-right motherfuckers would uh, manipulate that system. And they did a great job. They did a great job. They had an internal protest at Facebook that received very little public attention, by Were people mad about it? People people at Facebook are furious. Facebook needs to get its fucking house in order. That's what I'll say. I actually think one of the reasons it's so hard to be president um, is that the West Wing and the EEOB are separated. And so the president has to choose a core group of staff. The EEOB is the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Okay. So those buildings are separated. So um, the problem is that the president has to be in the White House, right? It's like, like, that's a good thing, right? So like, but he has to choose a core group of staff to be in there with him in the West Wing. And nobody else really gets access to the president. There's a badge system. The badge system is designed to only give certain people access to the West Wing, as you'd expect. I worked on the presidential transition team. Yeah. In 2008 and 2009, uh, in Chicago and then in D.C., as an assistant, as a special assistant on the VIP team, quote-unquote, we hired the whole cabinet. And the fact of the matter is that transitions are incredibly chaotic times. And the transition is still happening right now in the Trump administration. They're still hiring people. You have to hire 8,000 people. That's how many political appointees there are. And it takes months. It takes years. And what what happens is the transition team gets rolled into something called the Office of Presidential Personnel. And the Office of Presidential Personnel controls all the hiring decisions for Trump appointees. And there's a really interesting factor in that there's something called burrowing, where political appointees at the end of their tenure will sign up for a career government position in order to stay in the administration for the, for the following and not, get, not have to resign. Yeah. Our transition was the first one done on computers, for example. Yeah. And we struggled with the software so much, and we were smart people. But when you go from being on this campaign where you're in this massive room and you're all communicating like at Google or something. Right. And then you're walled off in little government cubicles and walled off in little offices. It goes from being a 21st century floor plan to a 19th century floor plan. And we have to think about our floor plans and the way that's affecting our government. Like, it's really critical. The government basically works like it's 1959. Like, it, 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 it's, it, and that's good in some ways. Because if the government could get things done really fast, that wouldn't be good. All right, let's go down to doubling yeah, sorry, down sorry. on the Doubling down on the feet of them. <laughs> So doubling down on the tweet is where we like to talk about how the Democrats are effectively conspiring to keep themselves out of power forever. Yeah, for, forever. Yeah, there are, there are two things that I kind of thought about um, this week in general. And one um, one is actually, uh, I think, a lot of the people on the left, uh, especially um, kind of well-heeled middle-class people, get their news from NPR. And that's not necessarily a bad source. I think it's a great source. But I think what NPR skews to are these human interest stories a lot. And oh, so, fuck. I love those stories, though. Well, but my point is that we tend to... We tend, and this is how I think the left tends to see politics and events and policy as in the story of individuals, right? Like one heartbreaking story after another. And I think it makes it really hard to talk about, okay, well, what... what are, Things, how are things being affected in the aggregate? Like, I understand that there's, there are going to be stories of heartbreak and hardship and crisis, but I think it also 
it also kind of puts to the background really kind of colder, more rational thoughts about policy. And I think I think there's a balance between the two, but I think in general... Can you give me an example? I mean, maybe that'll right, help absolutely. frame this for me, because I'm, I'm having a little trouble, too. Right, and so I think one way of thinking about the what I'm trying to argue is the fact that we've, we've put the human stories up front. When they, but when they cover things like healthcare, right, it's always about who's going to lose their healthcare. And, like, healthcare is complicated, and I'm not saying the Republicans are doing it in the right way, but there are going to be trades and balances, and, and that's a hard argument to have. And I think that the left in particular, doesn't do a great job of talking about balances and, and trade-offs. No, it's all or nothing. I, I would agree with that generally. Yeah. 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 Uh, my argument has always been, look, you the only way to win democratic elections is to somehow find common ground with people who found themselves either not voting or voting for Trump. And so you have to find common cause here. We had this thing on the 08 campaign called Neighbor to Neighbor. It was like a dashboard for people to call people in their neighborhood and ask them about Obama. And I helped develop it, and it was fucking beautiful, man. Like, it worked so well. We had, like, 60,000 people make calls to, like, another, you know, 240,000 people. And it, I think, probably is one of the main factors that helped us, that helped us win the election. Because it's that war of ideas, you know? You, you, it's, it's, not, it's not a war of guns. It's a war of ideas. So Facebook, right? As you said, it you know, was instrumental in Trump's victory. People tend to share more of their success, right? The more frequently somebody is posting on there, it's generally about, you know, the good things in their life or how things are going right or they're posting politics, right? Or they're, 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 the, the bias is toward presenting uh, a version of yourself that is its most... Pure and righteous. ...manicured, right? And I think this creates just a general kind of resentment that just floats all over the... Because people see other people living good lives on Facebook... They're, you know, living their regular, ordinary, like, shit life as we all live and with problems and difficulties. Yeah, we all want to project the best version of ourselves. Right, we all want to project it and we're all doing that on Facebook, but then we're also all witnessing everybody else projecting this best version of themselves. And so you're pissed off. You're seeing people in cities, you know, going to these, like, farmer's markets and, you know, like, poetry readings and having great lives and you're trapped somewhere else, you know. You're not seeing the shitty part of living in a city. Facebook creates like this uh, ongoing okay. sense of, of resentment against liberal elites perceived by just because of the way in which we tend to project an image of us being at our best. Instead of these people just disappearing, as has happened in every other generation in American history, and you living your life and becoming like a big fish in a small pond and getting some joy out of that and really satisfaction, instead you're seeing these people who have you're still connected to them and you're forced to like watch their lives play out what gets bandied about is that we're we're not seeing each other enough we're not communicating enough or we're not in, in each other's lives enough yeah and i would say that it's actually the opposite that's true that we're seeing each other in some ways too much i would we're, say in a very filtered way. in a very filtered way in a way that's not honest or accurate and doesn't actually involve communication i think that creates a sense of no it's feeling like you know a lot about these people when in actuality you you don't know shit, I think that is responsible for uh, this new you know era we live in where we're at each other's throats and we know exactly how to hurt each other. We know exactly the things to say to piss each other off. There's one other thing that I was thinking about, um, and it has to do a lot with kind of the momentum on the left. Like I think uh, people are talking about the slowing of the momentum of the resistance, and, yeah, 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 and things like that. But I think that there was. There's always a sense that 
Because Trump, in particular, is so odious to the left, they expected him to collapse at any given moment. And there isn't just a general sense of, look, it is very, very hard to topple a president. And so learning to think about longer-term strategies, I think, was hard. My point isn't that we're going to have this huge crumbling. I think there'll be... Oh, it's going to be a slow burn. Yeah, it'll slow slow burn. burn, And it'll be smaller, lower corruption scandals. It will be the equivalent of taking Al Capone out of the picture because of tax evasion. Right. Right. So I think it's understanding what that really means. And this gins up how they cover almost anything coming out of the Trump administration. Like, is this the sign that things are falling apart? As society changes... It becomes more critical to have more open discussions about these increasingly complex issues that we face. I think, and I think the the idea is that we're there's a lot of hard work ahead. Like the Trump, if the Trump implosion comes, it comes with a real cost. Yeah. And in the meantime, trying to move an electorate towards your side involves a lot more discussion, arguments, institution building, and then there's a long. Uh, this is a long, hard process. And anything else on the doubling down on defeat section? I, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. It, well, so let's move on to our, our outside the bubble section. Ooh. I have That's a really outside the bubble one for you. Okay. Guys. Poor Shannon.org <laughs> slash poll. They're probably arguing about what, like whether Slavs are white. Yeah. That's and generally it's, what they it's talk Saint about. It's St. Patrick's Day, so I'm sure they're arguing about whether Irish. Irish people are white. Okay, here's, here's the title of the post. What's the point of Western life is there is if there is no hope to be rich? Ah, that is some point. fucking dark shit, right? Sure. These are well, people who are yeah. grappling with the reality that Trump is not granting their wishes right now. And hey. the fact of the matter is that they're probably more pissed off than we are. We have people arguing about whether Hillary, Hillary Clinton's haircut. We have PewDiePie confirmed Poltard. Oh my God, some gore, some horrifying gore that I'll scroll past. Kinder Easter eggs. What does that mean? Is Iran really a threat to anyone? If you look at the history, they've literally never started a war against anyone. Why do some of us in government dislike Iran? That's interesting. Yeah. I think people are pretty familiar with the the horrifying tropes of the alt-right at a meme level. But uh, something I... I, There was an article that came out this week uh, that mentioned that Steve Bannon had a favorite philosopher, right? Favorite what? Philosopher. This guy, Charles Morris. So I I took it upon myself to read a few of his essays. uh, And he's a, you know, atheist... Uh, French intellectual. Oh, that's fucking fascinating. From uh, before World War II, kind of an Ezra Pound figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read one of his essays uh, called "Nature and Reason," which is a, it's about unpacking the French Revolution mm-hmm. from uh, nationalist pro-monarchy position. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, is he, so I mean, was he? Fr- uh, it feels like he's like a French Heidegger. Definitely less metaphysician. Heidegger is such a metaphysician. But so, so his point of view is, you know, he's most famous, I guess, at least in uh, analysis by the American Conservative magazine for framing the, the, uh, the, I guess, insight that there's often order without justice, but there's never justice without order. There's a propagandist. He, he ran uh, a magazine called Action Francais. Uh, and he was event- he was locked up eventually uh, by the French government. He died in prison uh, after the war, uh, despite being kind of liked by De Gaulle. Uh, a lot of people saw this as just like revenge on the French left from the French left after the war. Um, so uh, since we have you here, I think it's time to talk about random shit. And we wanted to talk a little bit about AI. Yeah, yeah. So I'm making this mannequin of myself that's going to whisper forever in my voice. How are you, you going to make it last forever? So every two to nine years, I add another mannequin, 
with the technology that exists at that point. And they all whisper to each other in a circle, one whispering into the ear of the next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it'll be a mannequin dressed in my clothes. So the the piece is called Virus Crescit in Spiritum, um, which means poison growing on a breath in Latin. The pitch is a set of mannequins dressed in the artist's clothes that will use long short-term memory, LSTM, recurrent neural network, RNN, machine intelligence, to whisper to one another forever in the artist's voice. I recorded myself for two months between um, November 2016, ironically, and January 27th. So basically between Election Day and the inauguration, sure. I recorded myself for two months. Um, wearing a, This is how I dealt with Trump also. Sure. Um, so I wore I wore a lavalier mic in my coat, and it was like, it's like legally gray a little bit, but like I'm willing to, I have good lawyers. Um, you know, I think I think I think it's fair use, and I think I was doing it and taking all the proper cautions. I, I, I let everybody know. I would I was socially, I would walk into a room and say, "Hey, I'm wearing a microphone. If you get within four feet of me, you're being recorded." I mean, you saw this. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely on there for five minutes. Yeah, yeah. So you're part of the robot now. And the point is that like I'm not going to ever listen to any of this audio. I, I have it on an encrypted folder on my computer that actually would delete itself if anyone tries to access it. So the point is that like. The audio is not the product. It's the I'm 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 using this tool called um, Pocket Sphinx, which is developed at Carnegie Mellon, to um, transcribe all that audio, and then I'm training a neural net on that transcript, and then I'm training a speech or text to speech model on my voice, and I'm making a robot that talks like me, and its body will be a mannequin dressed in my clothes, and it will whisper, and, and it'll whisper. It'll be very quiet. You'll yeah, have to get yeah, very close. You have to, to, get to hear it. You have to get closer. And um, it has to be physical. It has to be private because I really sacrificed a lot of my privacy for this project. Sure. Yeah, like so. This project, Virus Crescit in Spirit, Virus Crescit in Spiritum. That's how you'd say it, like a Roman. Yeah, I'm, I'm my confirmation saint is Saint Saint Weedus. Virus growing on a breath. So, I have a question. Yeah. What is your worst case scenario for AI? Oh, whoa, that's a good question. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I deal a little bit with machine learning. I don't deal with AI. <laughs> I don't deal with um, neural networks. I just never developed that. A lot of my stuff is more like, like I just deal with like huge data sets and like I always have like an application. So you're a big data guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I got in there pretty early. I, I consider AI a specific branch of machine learning. Is that fair or you think that's wrong? I think that's sort of wrong, to be honest. Okay. Um, I think that all of machine learning feeds into AI because AI is an amorphous thing that has a moving goalpost problem where basically what we define yeah. AI as, as a society is something that changes every 10 years because once we can do something, it's no longer considered AI. Yeah. So like, so like when you say I'm working on AI, you're not making a statement about what type of machine learning you're doing so much as you're making a statement that I'm working on the cutting edge of, uh, of this field. Just from a history point of view, I think the problem with AI was that um, it, it just had a bad kind of cachet around it. Like well, we, we, we get poisoned. I keep getting you off. I have so much to say about this. We get think, poisoned by our fiction. I'll just say right, that. absolutely. So like, so to get published, actually, you had to strip out the words AI out of your papers because it, it, it just had such a bad name. So even in academia, there was a dip in you could do a word search for artificial intelligence, and it drops off, and so. And it now, I think in the past four or five years, the actual term artificial intelligence has researched itself. And so what used to be considered artificial intelligence, I think, started to cloak itself as machine learning. 
um, because because the term AI had such a bad rap. So well, deep learning is the one that is the marketing term. Right, deep right. learning. Deep learning. That's what they're calling neural networks now. Yeah, or they're exactly. trying to, but now people are calling them neural nets again, which I, I'm grateful for because they are fucking neural nets. Yeah. They're modeled after how we think the brain works. Yeah. I mean, they're not perfect. They're glitchy as fuck, but that's what I find so fucking interesting. Right. Like, so, I, I, to go back to your point, um, so um, I deal with a, a specific, a couple of specific branches of machine learning. Um, and, uh, yeah, I deal a lot with, with kind of bigger data issues. Um, and it does have a lot to do with prediction. Um, so I think when I think about any kind of, like, machine learning, and I'll, I'll abuse the term and say machine learning also involves AI, but I think there's there's an argument. I think, I think they both involve each other. Yeah. It's symbi- symbiotic. Yeah. It's like, it's like machine learning and statistics, really. Yeah. The two fields are symbiotic. Right. So I, I think when I think about it, I think we, we live in an... Uh, we talked about this, that we live in an era where it's really we can suck in a lot of information um, in theory but we do actually need to, a way to think about this data that we're kind of coming up with um, and I and there's just this feedback loop of why we kind of build these the machine learning or artificial intelligence systems to help us process in our uh, data um, so I think it's a fascinating time and I would I, I think being being in data or, or in that field is really really interesting the problem is um, for me, what I see is um, there is very much a compression of who is involved in this field. So it's becoming highly specialized. It does select out for very technical people. And I can even see this in my work. I work in corporate America where uh, the people who can kind of operate and, and deal with this, it's, it's, it's compressed. So like, if you have a group of, say, people who used to deal with, I think, um, like an- analysts, right? Like you can replace effectively all of them by with a couple of people who can code um, either AI or machine learning algorithm. I mean, coming from uh, like a more corporate business world, to me that's a scary implication, and that's really what I deal with day to day. Actually, and I, I wonder if I'm actually not doing that myself. Like, I think I, it's like the bluish white color work that has the most to fear. But the point is that like. That's why we need a fuck edu- we need we can't be gutting the education department right now. The education department needs to be expanded if anything to include um, retraining for workers who are going to be displaced by new technology. The point is that technology is a fucking force of nature. You can't control yeah. changes in technology any more than you can control changes in language. I think when we when people who are, are in technology, we're taking like small little chunks out of it and like and like the people who are the best or like the most revolutionary in terms of technology don't necessarily see what's coming 10 years down the road. I think education may be a solution. I just think that no matter what, I think I think you're talking about a field that will employ, by its nature, few, few people. It will be an elite technical group of people. Yet from a, from a, from an outsider's perspective, lo- looking at the horror of AI, I would say the thing that's most terrifying about it to people who don't know is, not, is that it, it's permanent nature, right? So I would, I would urge people who are developing AI programs to emphasize the transient nature of a possible AI that is used for one specific purpose. Well, that's what we have now. We haven't solved general AI. Right. Yeah. Maybe we never will. Maybe it's... Hopefully we never will. Why would, why would, we, want, why well, would we want to? That's what I'm saying. Like, AI has so much fucking promise. Not general AI, not human-shaped AI, because AI shouldn't be human-shaped. But narrow AI that can solve problems for us that we don't know how to solve yet. There, there is a certain cachet with AI even now. It becomes really scary. I think what happens is that even when you're talking about complicated problems, there's always a sense of 
you're putting in human values, right, into anything you think about in terms of politics or complicated world problems. I think you're, you're talking about putting in human values. But again, and this is what I come back to, is that effectively you're, um, you're allowing a system that I think is going to be powerful. It already is powerful, but it's very powerful now, and it will be more powerful and it is being led by sort of a, a technocratic elite, right? When you're in a moment um, of change, right? It's so very hard to see beyond that um, in a way that allows you to make kind of ethical decisions. Um, and one of the things that I, I think a lot about, and especially like, like especially in the past like 200 years, is that um, there are generations or half generations that kind of find themselves in, in a moment of discovery of new technologies or new insight and they think they've discovered the world and it takes about another generation to be like, they didn't know shit. And like they make really bad decisions because they're sort of very confident about what they have just discovered. I, to me, like I think, I think we're in a moment of discovery, but I think by human nature that makes us arrogant about what we know and what we don't know. And it makes it very hard for us to make moral and ethical decisions. And, that, and that's a hard place to be, but it's a lovely place to be because we are discovering new things. But you can see this all generation after generation like you know in the 60s there was this young generation of very smart people like Robert McNamara is completely emblematic but they made mm -hmm. terrible decisions in part because they were so in love with the idea that they were uh, on the verge of this technical technological revolution like and they had access to mainframes and things like that so uh, it I, is, I feel like we're going to repeat those kind of mistakes. I fear that we're in a renaissance period without a brutal Catholic church making people focus on beauty, in which case that makes us in a pre-war period. <laughs> but <laughs> I'll just I'll leave it there. And uh, yeah. I, think, I think that brings us to another satisfying conclusion of Room of Requirements. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks so much to Ross Goodwin, and you can check out all his various projects and works online. And we'll... Uh, and we want to thank Kevin Carter for our theme music. Yes.